Welcome to Everybody Hates Me, Let's Talk About Stigma, a podcast hosted by Dr. Carmen Logie. She's a Canada Research Chair in Global Health Equity and Social Justice with Marginalized Populations and an Associate Professor at the University of Toronto's Factor in Wintosh Faculty of Social Work. Every week, the show features amazing speakers from around the world talking about stigma from research, lived experiences, and activism perspectives. Why should we care about stigma? What can we do about it? Thank you for tuning in. Let's start the show. Listeners, I am really honored today to have a fantastic, world-renowned scholar, thinker, community organizer, a lot of different titles, uh, Dr. Charlotte Lopi. She is a professor in the School of Public Health and Social Policy and the Associate Dean of Research in the Faculty of Human and Social Development at the University of Victoria. Her guiding principle is to be of service to Indigenous communities, collectives, and organizations. To that end, she has made it her life's work to bring Indigenous peoples into research projects that touch their lives. Um, She does a lot of different types of research, focusing on Indigenous health inequities, HIV and AIDS, barriers to accessing the social determinants of health, racism, and cultural safety. Welcome, Dr. Charlotte Lopi. <laughs> Thank you, Carmen. <laughs> <laughs> it's so great. I, you know, I've been on many emails and, and I've seen you speak, but we've actually not really met. No. I want to know from your perspective, if you're in an elevator and it's, either before COVID or after COVID when we can hang out in elevators again. What is your sort of elevator talk to describe what you do? Mm, I guess it depends on what elevator I'm in. But uh, (laughs) yeah, I guess if I'm in a general elevator, yeah, I would just say that I I teach and uh, do research in the area of uh, Indigenous health. Yeah, and the conditions that uh, either create barriers or facilitate that health. I think that might be, yeah, or sometimes if I want to get a reaction out of people, I just say, yeah, I teach a big class in human sexuality, and that Mm. gets a very different reaction. (laughs) (laughs) You do that right before people get off. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, I'm sure you didn't mean that that way, but... (laughs) So I'm going to show up. Are you in Victoria right now? Uh, yeah. Victoria is so gorgeous. People don't know Vancouver Island, Victoria. It's magical. It's yeah. my dream to eventually maybe end up out there. I'm going to show up at your house. Yay. And I'm going to bring, yeah, that would be amazing. I'm going to bring my time machine. And my time machine has space for physically distancing. And I'm going to ask you to take me to the time and place where you thought, you want to focus on addressing social determinants of health or, you know, your, your kind of current research program around Indigenous health and well-being, uh, Indigenous racism. Where would you take me in the time machine? Probably to when I was five and first realized that people uh, didn't like my mom because she was brown. Uh, <laughs> I'm being facetious, but yeah, I mean, this is a, uh, one of my mentors, Madeline Dion Stout, who is an amazing Cree 
scholar. She wouldn't consider herself an elder, but she's um, she's a, a leading knowledge holder. Uh, said that Indigenous women. She was talking to a bunch of us. We're organic uh, academics mm. because we seek to understand our own life experiences, so that our research literally grows out of our experiences. Yeah. So I think. I would say that, you know, as soon as I knew that research was like something I could do, because like, I mean, I left home when I was 16. I had a grade 10 education. I didn't like university wasn't in the, I was going to say cards, but it wasn't even the stars for me. And it wasn't until I, you know, had a child and, you know, became a single mom that someone said, hey, you know, you know, you can go to university and you know, you can get uh, some assistance in paying your rent and a few years later that I, you know, realized that that was a, even an opportunity for me. And so it was never a question that I wasn't going to do something that was going to serve community, right? And so it wasn't like I was just going to pursue a career that was completely focused on self, you know, interest or building a career. It was going to be like, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to do something that's meaningful to me. Um, so I'm Mi'kmaq and French Acadian from Nova Scotia. And so I was always, that was always an obligation that I had. Like, I have accountability for what I do, right? And so early on, it was also work in the, I married into the Black Nova Scotian community when I was 19. So 1978, back when you could still get hurt for having mixed race couples and, you know, even just being um, black in, especially in Nova Scotia, it was super racist, still is. Yeah. And so it was always part of my accountability to the families and the communities that I belong to, to do that research. That was a long answer, but. No, I, I love that. So the time machine is going back to Nova Scotia, really, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 Oh. Yeah. You, you've sort of touched on a lot of the things I was going to ask you about, which is around what is the urgency that you see for addressing, you know, stigma and discrimination with the communities you work with? You've mentioned that there's talked about anti-Indigenous discrimination and anti-Black racism as well. Or in, So this is something you've been doing for a long time yeah. <laughs> thinking about for a long time so i'm sure you have something you want to share with the listeners about yeah. why we should be all thinking and, and caring about this yeah and so i mean you know it's black history month now and we and we're you know in the era at least uh people are talking about reconciliation and so this is the time that people have decided to talk about it like in a broader way. And so, yeah, we often do have to uh, explain to people why it's important for everybody to think about this, right? Not just people who are BIPOC, like Black, Indigenous, people of color, who are faced with, you know, anti-whatever racism all the time, is that, yeah, race, you've probably talked about this already on your show, but you know, race is a something, isn't something that grew out of the ground. Like, it's not it's not a biological like variable, <laughs> even though people use it like that, right? It, it, it's something that we all kind of, we didn't all, but a bunch of people just thought it up, right? Mm-hmm. A bunch of Europeans like 400 years ago said, hey, yeah, these folks look different than us. Like, let's call them mm-hmm. this, 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 and this, and we'll call ourselves this. And they created race 
as like a people academics call it a social construct it's like a made-up thing that people all agreed on or not everybody but you know eventually everybody people who made the categories agreed on it <laughs> well eventually everybody kind of thought yeah okay well i guess that's a thing now like it's been so long but they didn't just create race like a it wasn't a a bunch of categories it was a hierarchy mm. right it was always it was always like shaped that way it was shaped with white people racialized as white at the top and then you know people racialized as you know yellow red black that's always the way it's been done and so we just all buy into that so it's not like it's a black problem or an indigenous problem it's a lie throughout the whole Mm-hmm. the whole hierarchy is a lie, right? And so even if you're racialized as white, you're still being racialized. You're still being categorized in a way that is false, right? Mm-hmm. And so that's led to all the trouble, all the problems. And so I say to people racialized as white, you know, this is a problem for everyone. This is a problem for you because it creates divisions in society it creates fear among people it creates distrust it creates cruelty mm-hmm. because of a lie and so yeah i mean for me one of the most it's not even frustrating anymore it's sort of i get a little bit sad that at 62 and in 2021 i'm still making the same arguments that i was making in like 1975 mm. And as like as a 15 year old you know like saying well why you know you know why don't you like me because my mom is brown or you know what difference does it make who i love if that person is black or brown right it seems like we're still trying to convince people about that lie yeah and we don't even live in the states so you know i'm just <laughs> I just mean that like this, this, the state's having problems with reality right now, or always, but yeah, <laughs> that was a poor attempt at a joke. <laughs> no, I think, you know, you, you've really laid it out in a very clear way that the categories of race are not neutral, they're hierarchical, and they're not real, they're actually made up, and that they actually hurt everybody. Yeah. Is there anything you want to share about what you've noticed that you want the listeners to know about what stigma and discrimination and racism look like today? Like, how is it impacting the lives of people that you work with or that you're in community with? Yeah. And so I guess the, you know, I mean, the thing to understand about, you know, stigma is that stigma is basically just the the sense of something being like negative. It's something disgraceful, right? Right. People talk about stigma around mental illness or substance use or sex work. Like we, we, we kind of understand that, but we, we also stigmatize people of different racialized uh, groups, right? So in this country and many others, being indigenous, being black, is stigmatized, right? So I, you know, you walk in the door and there is a stigma attached to being who you are. Right. But that doesn't just happen at a like what I would call like a relational level, like, you know, you and I meet one of us sees the racialization of the other and maybe acts, you know, differently toward that person than they would toward someone who's racialized differently. It also happens 
So that's like harmful enough, right? But we kind of already know all that stuff, right? It's the it's the sticks and stones stuff. Mm-hmm. But it's that also happens at a what they call systemic. That means it it's that level of stigma it crosses over all of the systems that we interact with on on a daily basis. Education, justice, health, especially I mean we we talk about health all the time now, but like the you know in jobs right so every facet every situation in our lives is like steeped in that and then if we i always use a tree as a metaphor right this is a tree everybody understands a tree or a plant they know what it is right so if you think about a tree then mm-hmm. at the crown level in the limbs or the stems of a tree that's the relational environment that's where people interact with each other they discriminate in very overt ways, right? Like, it's like, you know, you can't have a job here. You can't get an apartment. I remember in 1978, my uh, late husband, who's passed away, but a a black Nova Scotian man, we couldn't get an apartment, could not get an apartment. Like, and I'm, I'm indigenous and European, but I'm get racialized as white. I'm fair skinned and I'm not, I don't have a stereotypical, you know, indigenous look among some people. White people don't usually uh, identify me as indigenous. So when we went to get an apartment, we would phone, you know, do you have any, op- you know, have any, you know, openings or um, vacancies? Yep. Yep. Come on down. We go as soon as they'd see him. And this is no word of a lie. There's no places. So I said, you have to stay home because we're not going to get a, like, I'm literally not going to get a place to live if you come. So we got an apartment. We moved in, the superintendent the day after we moved in came to me, old white guy, and said, is that colored that colored fella, that was the term he was using, 1978, is that colored fella your, you know, your fiancé or your boyfriend? I said, yeah. He said, why didn't you tell me he was colored? <laughs> I said, well, why, why do I need to? <laughs> like, I already knew what would happen. <laughs> why do I need to tell you he's colored? So those are like the everyday, you know, racism that, but if you, again, if you think about, well, you know, that's on an individual level, right? It might even be in a community, but there's these in the core, the trunk of that tree. That's all the systems, mm-hmm. right? That are not only feeding those like smaller environments, but they're the the structure, if you will, of our society that we all have to access. And so, but then deeper still are the, of course, they're the roots, right? Mm-hmm. We know that if a tree is unhealthy, if you're just looking at a tree, the leaves are dying generally and i've looked this up (laughs) generally because i thought oh i better be sure that i know what i'm talking about i'm not a botanist uh (laughs) that the problem lies in the roots of the tree Mm. right those leaves are being poisoned or they're deficient in some way in terms of the nutrients so we have to look at the roots Mm. usually of course they're under the ground nobody notices them and it's easier to spray a tree for bugs than it is to you know, get deep into the roots and try to, quote unquote, cure the problem. But that's where the problem is. Like, Hmm. our society is rooted in ideology of race, Mm -hmm. how and the doctrine of discovery, folks don't know what that means. It's like back in the day, the European people, no offense, I have European ancestry too, who thought up the racial, you know, hierarchy said, oh, Let's go out into the world and see what's out there for us, for us. Mm. And any place we go, 
where the people there don't have an allegiance to a European king or ruler, well, then that land is terra nullis, which means land belonging to no one. That's what the doctrine of discovery was. That's how colonization occurred, and slavery to some extent, because the people were considered not to be human if they weren't aligned or they didn't have an allegiance to a European monarch. So when they came to lands with indigenous folks of all different types, whether it was Africa or South America or North America, it was like, oh, great, we could take this place because they are not really like human Mm -hmm. based on this racial hierarchy and the doctrine of discovery. And I mean, so that's part of the roots of our, I mean, even if we just take Canada, that's the that's a that's like they call these perennial roots like the big fat roots that hold a tree into the ground from which the the whole tree grows right like and then there's like millions of little roots that spread out to like access all the resources well when your perennial root when your big fat roots are ideologies of racism patriarchy which is like men should be in charge and you know racism is based on and I, I mean, it's, I can't believe people are actually saying this now, white supremacy. So we used to say white supremacies were like neo-Nazis and skinheads, right? But people are using that term. And quite literally, that is true. Mm-hmm. The, the racial hierarchy says white people are supreme in every way, intellectually, morally, socially, politically, economically, right? So, and then patriarchy basically says men should be in charge because women are inferior. Like that got brought here. That wasn't the way with most indigenous cultures. They were either egalitarian, which means like everybody was equal, or they were matriarchal, which meant like women generally were in charge, right? Or people just shared. So, you know, white supremacy, patriarchy, and then capitalism, right? So capitalism basically just says it's every person for themselves. If you can get rich on the backs of somebody else, go ahead and do it. Mm-hmm. Like, go ahead and do it. Like, not indigenous folks were egalitarian, right? It's like, let's everybody be equal. We all have a role to play. We're all going to contribute to the community. We're all going to share in the benefits that we all bring in. Well, that's not capitalism, right? That's like, shit on your neighbor if you can get ahead. So those are like these big structural roots how in the world are we going to change things like up at the top but that's where we keep putting our energy it's like be nice don't be mean you know indigenous people and and black people are just like you but that's not the ideology that that's like saturated the entire tree if you will right and so for me if you're not paying attention to the root I mean, it's not that we ignore, like, the STEM environment, like, the everyday acts of whatever they are, fear, hatred, exotifying people, like, saying, you know, like, saying, oh, I, you know, I get this sometimes, you know, oh, I just love Indigenous people. I say, oh, yeah, what what do you love about us? (laughs) Oh, you're so (laughs) this and you're so that. I say, well, not everybody is, right? Like, Indigenous people are as diverse as, I mean as anyone in Europe. Like if you go to Spain, you don't know anything about Scottish people. Like you can't go to Spain and say, I just love you Europeans. You're all so dot, 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 right? I say there are like hundreds and 
hundreds of different communities and cultures and languages. They think a stereotype is a compliment. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Well, and it's like the exotic, right? Mm. Other, right? You can demonize people and you can, you can, you know, make them into something exotic, but you're still creating a false image of who they are. And so, like I said, that, that harms everybody because as soon as one group does that to another group, well, you can be sure the oppressed group or the group that's being stigmatized is going to do that right back. It's going to say, oh, now white people. And, sh you know, we do. We do know this happens, right? And so then you've got these tensions. I mean, we see it all the time. Racial tension, right? Conflict, fear. I watched a video this morning my sister sent me about a 15-year-old boy in Markham amazing kid who talked about being black at 15 about what his life was like and it, you could hear it in his voice it was like a plea for people to understand what his life was like because he was being treated for his blackness right that that was what people saw it who you know when they looked at him and this massive stereotype, but a stigmatized stereotype. Because we can stereotype, like we could say, oh, you know, there's a stereotype about, you know, certain people can't drive, or, you know, they used to say that about women. You know, women can't be in politics, right? That's a stereotype. I mean, it's negative, but it's not like, this person's going to hurt me. This person's going to rob me. This person is going to be detrimental to my, you know, wellness, right? And so when that is the perception well, I don't know, like people, I think people understand being treated badly, right? Like, I mean, you go into a restaurant, the wait staff treats you poorly, you know, you go to, I don't know, wherever you go. And, and people's first inclination when they're treated badly, whoever they are, is to say, I'm never coming back here again. I'm not going to tolerate this. Um, but if you have no control over that, if you have no control over whether or not you can go back because it's a hospital and you kind of have to go there to live and be mm. like, well, <laughs> you know, if it's school where you're like legally obliged to attend <laughs> yeah. and you can't get an education anywhere else, mm -hmm. you know, if it's a, a cop or the legal system and you literally have no control over when you interact, if you interact with that, you know, with those people, then it becomes this entire like environment of fear, distrust, apprehension, and uh, folks constantly trying to navigate their way around systems that are like literally um, embedded in their lives. Well, there is no escaping that, right? And so then the stress and the trauma just accumulates, you know, it's acute, right? It's like this happened and this happened and that happened, but that all builds up in your system like a toxin, right? Mm -hmm. And it literally kills people. Like it literally kills people. There's like research that says, hey, you know, when this happens and this happens like all the time, never ending and you can never do anything about it. Yeah, your immune system will just shut down and you'll die from like all kinds of diseases and you know, health problems. That's such a, a powerful metaphor with the tree and how 
people often just focus on the leaves because you're right it's just easier to like get a ladder and like spray the leaves but like actually to go and start digging out the ground and to so start thinking oh these are the ways that we have been taught in school this is the way that police have been trained this is the way that healthcare providers have learned about pain or addiction about particular people and stereotypes and how those yep those all produce this really toxic environment that can kill people as you said over time with stress or yeah. maybe kill people because they're not being treated right in a hospital or maybe kill people because yeah. police are disproportionately um, yeah. stopping and reacting with violence towards people based on the color of of their skin so i think that was you know it's really good i i'm to hear it from you I, I read something recently because i was thinking about dehumanization and yeah. what it said was that dehumanization is uh, reducing somebody a person to an animal or an object and so i think what you said uh, with the exotification it sounds well it could be an animal or an object and with with people are creating this idea that somebody is is scary or inherently scary then that's like making them into a non-human like maybe animal you gave me feedback once on a paper we worked on together what did i do and since you gave me that feedback, oh, I have yeah. never done done that since. So just so you know, I I think I I framed something as HIV vulnerability. Oh. And you really gave me such kind and you always give me really kind and thoughtful feedback, which I'm really grateful for. But you were just said you're trying not to construct people as vulnerable. And I've been reading more about that recently. And I think it's easy to look at the problem as lying within people who are experiencing yeah. toxic environments because they're being <laughs> experiencing yeah. racism yeah. and all in all these different yeah. barriers. Whereas the problem actually lies in the people doing the naming of what the problem is. I don't know. It's not very clear, but I, you did actually say that to me once and I, I've actually taken that with me just so you know. Yeah. Well, and, and yeah, and I've, I mean, that doesn't just come from me. That's a teaching I received from lots of folks that have been like, you know, talking about this stuff and thinking about it for like many, many more years than I have. But, you know, the other thing I wanted to just mention is that in addition to cops and healthcare professionals and educators being, you know, uh, steeped in this fallacy of race and racism, the structures don't just, I mean, we ta- I talked about, you know, cumulative stress, but the structure also creates those environments, right? So the environments in which people live and then their relationship to these systems is also like part of that, like perennial roots, right? So if you think just about Indigenous folks, right? So when, uh, okay, so we have racial hierarchy, the doctrine of discovery, we have you know, European people coming and saying, yay, like, there's nobody here except these like savages, right? So we're totally going to take over. And then, uh, then we've got this like, system of communities, like we call them reserves, like it's like the so the government said, like, all the land belongs to us. Yay. Oh, right. Indigenous people. Okay, so we're going to stick you on these little tiny pieces of land far enough away from us that we don't have to actually like pay any attention to you. And they're going to be like the shittiest pieces of land available. Like maybe there's no water or it's toxic and there's no room to farm or, you know, do stuff that helps you stay 
alive, right? So there's that, right? So those reserves, like there's a ton of like social, political, economic, and even environmental conditions that are now impacting just because of where those places are, their access to resources, the ability because of the relationship between Indigenous people and the quote-unquote state, which is the federal government, like all of that stuff has created environments that are toxic to health, that create their environments of risk, right? So it's not like the people are vulnerable. I mean, they've been, they're now exposed to risk, right? Because of these structural decisions right the political decisions i'm not even going to go into like indian hospitals residential schools like all of that stuff and if researchers are listening Mm -hmm. make no mistake uh research has been a big part of that problem early on researchers wanted to know Mm -hmm. what was wrong with indigenous people and that was the focus of the research and that was the outcome quote unquote the facts, the evidence that we had about Indigenous people, and that evidence just reinforced racist policies and this idea that Indigenous people, that we can't take care of ourselves, that we can't, you know, govern ourselves. I don't know what the hell we were doing before folks came, like, <laughs> we're just running around, just running around, <laughs> bumping into each other, I guess. Um, but, you know what I'm saying? So, like, it, research has a, like, Research and researchers have to hold accountability for that, right? And that's why I say to folks, try not to do that deficit-focused stuff anymore. Like, we already, and if you're going to do it, pay attention to those structures and systems that are perpetuating the problem, not the stuff at the, you know, not the leaves that are looking unhealthy, the health outcomes. Because, you know, you can, like I said, you can spray those leaves all you like. It's not going to make one bit of difference in the root. None. We're at the systems level now, though. So I'm like, I'm somewhat hopeful because we're starting like the the most recent investigation into the healthcare system in BC. So the in plain sight report that was basically, I mean, it's kind of funny because we've like we like lots of us have been doing that kind of research for years and have been saying, hey, you know, there's a bunch of racism in the healthcare system. And, uh, but I'm happy that at least they're paying attention to it now. And so we've got research like that, that is pointing the finger at the system, mm-hmm. not at the people who are impacted by the system. And so that's a good thing. That's, that's so great. And I, I teach a research class right now for Masters of Social Work students. And, you know, we, we teach how social workers are part of the problem with the overrepresentation of Black and Indigenous children in care. And I also am including in the research mistreatment of Indigenous people as well as uh, Black and Black people in, in North America as well in research, including the research that was done um, to document malnutrition in residential schools, oh, yeah. which was a gross violation of, of human rights. So I, I really am glad you mentioned that because I actually, I'm hoping that some people will share this with researchers, with students, and you know, so they don't, yeah. they don't misunderstand mistrust of research as anything but a very logical mistrust of research rooted in current and historical. Yeah. Uh, violations of human rights. So I'm 
glad that you you pointed the yeah. lens back at the people who are yeah. in positions of power, whether that be research, healthcare, you know, all those folks. Yeah. I mean, researchers, like, you know, when people say, oh, you know, they say dot, dot, dot about whatever, they're talking about research, right? They're talking about they, we're the they that are like literally, we're not creating knowledge, we're constructing it, right? Again, we're not picking it off a tree. Like we're asking specific questions about specific things and research, you know, to your point can be literally like life threatening to people, Tuskegee mm-hmm. experiments or another where they let black men in the States, you know, live and mm-hmm. die with syphilis, even though there was a cure, they just wanted to see what it looked like when people, you know, lived and died with it. But there was no, to my understanding, in, at least in Canada, there were no ethical like principles by which researchers were held accountable before the, the tri-council policy statement, which is our like, hey, don't hurt people when you're doing your research. I mean, that was like late 90s, right? So it's it's totally understandable that people would who were involved as quote unquote subjects or participants of research before that, because let's face it, like researchers are just as flawed as anyone else. Like, and there's lots of folks back then who who literally were doing research that was completely pathologizing and contributing to the stereotypes of indigenous and other uh, folks as well, racialized as non-white yeah thank you so much for for sharing all your knowledge i have one last stigma question before we get to the wild cards and it is what do you want what do you want listeners to do how can listeners be part of the solution it could be Mm. somebody walking their dog it could be a researcher it could be a health provider what do you want you know and it might be a couple different things that you would like people to do yeah uh well you know i I guess that I'm going to assume that I'm uh, talking to folks that are not racialized as black or indigenous. And you can also give messages to folks who are racialized too. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and I do some like cultural safety, uh, anti-indigenous or um, anti-racist education. And so for me, it's really about folks understanding who they are in this whole discussion we're having academics call it social location, right? But it's really about saying like, who am I? Like, if I'm a person racialized as white, what does that mean about how am I being treated with preference? Or how am I being advantaged by all of this? Like, to the extent, where do I live? And who lived here before? And how did uh, not just my family get here? But how, how am I like benefiting from the initial like folks who came and said, you know, hey, nice house. Why don't you go in the basement and we'll just like live here and benefit from it. You know, how often do I look into the basement of that house that I'm like warm in, you know, and, and, and being protected by? And how often do I look down into the basement and say, yeah, huh? what's, what's, what's with you folks? How come you're not doing very well? Right. Like, how often do I do that? Like, how often do I look at someone and make a decision in my mind about who Mm -hmm. they are in relation to what my expectations of people should be, right? There's a whole lot of, like, bootstrap mentality out there that does not, does not consider the root or the core, the trunk of that tree. 
So hmm. I guess that's what I would ask people to do is just really just be super honest with yourself. It's so hard. Nobody likes to know the difficult truth about themselves, but I don't know who said the truth will set you free. <laughs> no, I love that. I think it really is this whole, I just finished writing this book, which is a very painful process where I, I'm critiquing the notion that people are hard to reach. Yeah. And each chapter is involves a conversation with someone from the research team. So our mutual colleague, Dr. Candice Liss, yeah. is in one of the chapter in conversation with me about the, the work that we've been doing together in the Northwest Territories that you're part of. And she talked about cultural humility and, and people <laughs> and people being able to hear no if people yeah. don't want to engage with them <laughs> like that 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 we have to also be like oh you can do and ask for whatever you want you just have to yeah be able to hear if communities don't want to work with you exactly and if young people don't want to engage with you um maybe you need to do something different yeah and and, and, and maybe exactly. that you know, obviously yeah. that needs to align with what young people want yeah. so it was a really yeah. interesting thing about looking at ourselves as being the problem <laughs> versus yeah. anybody else or your dog nobody has any <laughs> any uh, obligation to, to yeah with you unless maybe they're your child or you know and we love dogs like you know um thank you so much before we we leave i want to I want the listeners to get to know some more about you. So I have some wild card questions. Are you ready? All right. <laughs> the first one is, what are you watching on Netflix right now? What am I watching on Netflix? Uh, I don't think I'm watching Netflix, but my my daughter's... Or any kind of TV. <laughs> yeah, my daughter's partner got me on Prime. I don't even... like it. I don't know what it is, but I think it's like Netflix. And uh, yeah, it's like Amazon Prime, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And so I'm watching, um, it's called The Great. Oh. And it's about Catherine the Great. Uh, so she oh. married into this, it's, it's kind of a filthy, um, <laughs> campy kind of a, yeah, a series. I think it's 10 episodes uh, where this, yeah, this young woman who marries this real despot of a, it's Peter the Great's son, and he's a real wanker and uh so she's like trying to plot his murder so that she can make russia uh you know a more progressive and egalitarian society so she's like she she's uh it, it's it's there's quite a bit of humor in it and lots of sex oh and uh it's it's kind of funny yeah it's called the great i see i've never heard anybody Part of it is self-interest. I'm asking everybody what they're watching. But a lot of people keep saying The Crown, and I've never watched that either. But no one said The Greats. No, I didn't. I wasn't interested. I wasn't interested in The Crown at all. This, I just, I just sort of happened upon this when I was, you know, you spend like an hour trying to figure out <laughs> what's the least crappy thing you're going to watch that you can absolutely, like, just tolerate, right? Totally. But I actually... And it's I the like time that you'd, you'd spend watching. You're like, yeah. okay, well, there goes my hour looking for something. Yeah. Am I going to cry because I've lost this hour of my life if I watch this show? So if I say, if I can say no to that, then I'll watch it. Yeah, because we've pretty much exhausted all the good stuff. Right. Um, okay, second question. Uh, if you could go, imagine there's 
no COVID or there's COVID vaccines everywhere. And you could go anywhere you want for dinner with anybody you want. Where would you go and who would you take? I would definitely take my kid, my daughter. So I have a 36-year-old daughter by my late husband. And she is the absolute, you know, reason that I get up every morning. Uh I, yeah, she's the best thing that ever happened to me. She changed my life. She, she, yeah, she just, I can't, you know, I, I sound like a mother, but uh, it's more than that. Like, I, I don't just love her unconditionally. I admire her. I respect her. I learn from her all the time. And I'm so glad that uh, that she loves me. And uh, and where would I go? Um, it's not open anymore. But there was this, I think there was this place down on, uh, down the waterfront in um, Victoria, which is, it is, I agree with you. It's absolutely gorgeous here. The lands of the Lekwungen people. I'm just so grateful to be a visitor here. I'm uninvited and I'm always looking for ways to show my gratitude to the Esquimalt and the Hussanic and the Songhees people. But there used to be a little uh, restaurant called the Guild down on uh, the waterfront in Victoria. And it served uh, things that I had never had before, scotch eggs. Oh, my mom used to, my parents came from the, yeah. uh, Ireland, England, Scotland. The UK. When they were pregnant with yeah. me. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. my mom used to make scotch eggs all the time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So for people who don't know, it's a boiled egg that they, then they, they like, they mash like a uh, sausage all around it. And then they, deep fry it oh sweet mother it's delish and then we used to have like toffee sticky toffee pudding oh yeah my mom makes sticky toffee pudding (laughs) like this is all british stuff i think yeah oh my god so good and so she and i used to go there as a special treat we get a charcuterie platter and sam my daughter who is an amazing woman and is like the manager of direct client services at the victoria sexual assault center and so just i admire her work so much but she loves charcuterie like so meats and cheeses and pickles and jellies and things and she just like and she loves to say charcuterie (laughs) like she so when we say it we you know we we scrunch our shoulders up and we put our (laughs) fingers in front of us because it's like oh we're gonna go for our charcuterie (laughs) nice and we always each get a scotch egg and then we get the sticky toffee pudding and that was our like dream thing but it's spending time with her right she and seeing joy on her face like uh it just kills me and it and it like uh it makes me so happy at the same time like it's always like i'm so happy i want to cry when i see her happy Uh, so are you saying it's closed because of covid right now i think it closed like period i i I remember driving by uh i think it was before covid we were like what no because like where do you get scotch eggs and and toffee sticky toffee pudding right okay my mom's house if you ever want to come to rural ontario you know i'll impose on your mother i don't have a problem with that (laughs) i was gonna say i would love she would love that i would love to see a you know i was gonna say if you find another place yeah i'd love to see a selfie of you and in your amazing daughter that would be awesome yeah and so i know we're at time i just have one last question i ask everybody that yeah no worries usually no no pressure it's usually my favorite question just no pressure at all (laughs) what is one word of wisdom 
uh, that you'd want to share with the listeners that help this helped you through your, your journey? Well, like a single or, oh. or a sentence or a statement of phrase. Words. Fear? No. <laughs> it can be a quotation yeah. or a, yeah. you yeah. know, a saying or a word of advice. <laughs> For sure. Yeah. So my so one of my one of my absolute uh, favorite authors is Maya Angelou, mm. and so she wrote, as you know, like I know where the caged bird sings, and she was yeah. poet laureate, and I mean she's like amazing. I raised my daughter with her her teachings, and one of the one of her teachings that has always stuck with me, and I've passed it along to I don't know how many people is uh, when someone shows you who they are, believe them. Mm. And so for me, yeah, I've always said to my daughter, it's not about who people think they are and tell you who they think they are back to that business of like, you know, like the truth will set you free, (laughs) but, and it's not about judging people. It's about knowing people's intention. And so people show you who they are. It's about paying attention to their actions and not so much with what they want you to Mm -hmm. think of them or even what they think who they think they are and so she is just always a profound teacher for me and so I would say that that's the one that sticks out for me oh I love that that's I really love that and and I love Maya Angelou I have a really big uh, anthology some uh, yeah some yeah friends former students who gave me and I I love that piece of advice too because it's also trusting your trusting yourself to you know make decisions about who are the people in your circle as well yeah. by through their actions and not <laughs> their words. So it's wonderful. Yeah. Thank you so much. I feel yeah. so yeah. grateful yeah. that you you made the Thanks. time. I know you're oh. so busy and yeah. you've shared so much wonderful wonderful wisdom with us. I just want to say thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Carmen. I'm grateful that you even wanted to talk to me. So, yeah, hopefully, hopefully I didn't ramble too much. <laughs> no, and, you're perfect. Uh, and one day we will meet and maybe it'll be in Victoria. Yeah. <laughs> It'd be so lovely. And we'll go for, we'll find a scotch eggs and, and toffee, <laughs> sticky toffee pudding together. <laughs> maybe you can find them there. Your, your ancestral nose will like seek them out. And <laughs> yeah, I don't need the, um, the sausage now, but you know. Bring your mom. Oh, she would love that. Are you kidding me? She would be, yeah? probably pack some, fly them over. Oh, <laughs> listen, Victoria is as British as you get. Like it's like what somebody said to me is the, it's the biggest gated community in the country. It's very British. Like <laughs> no offense. I love it here, but it's No, totally it's British. great. Well, thank you so much. Yeah, it's my pleasure. You have a good day. Thank you for listening to Everybody Hates Me, Let's Talk About Stigma, a podcast hosted by Dr. Carmen Logie. Join us next week for more inspiring and motivating conversations with stigma leaders from around the world.